always depended on the kindness of strangers. All right, so he's not a regular rat or, or even a super rat. He's a scared little mouse, that's all. Ha, I had two years to grow claws, Mother. Jungle Ray! Hello, and welcome to The Real Woman, a podcast about all things cinematic. I am your host, Emmanuel Perryman. One of my favorite eras in film is referred to as the pre-code era, and it spans only four short years, from 1930 to 1934. My guest today is here to talk about that brief but prolific time in cinema's history. Mark Vieira is a photographer and writer. He creates glamour portraits in the classic Hollywood mode and writes books about the artists, genres, and photographic technique of Hollywood's golden era. Mark has written 17 books on these topics, but today we're focusing on one of his books, published in 2019 by Turner Classic Movies, Forbidden Hollywood, The Pre-Code Era. Mr. Vieira, welcome. Oh, thank you, Emmanuel. So, before we really get into it, I think we should first talk about what we mean when we say pre-code, because there was a code in place, so why are the movies from from this era, 1930 to 1934, and not, say, the 1920s, labeled as pre-code? Yeah, that's a very specific thing. Again, there's so much misunderstanding and misinformation spread about that. Uh, I'll explain. There were several attempts during the 20s to rein in the producers from creating films that might offend uh, sensitive people, children uh, in the theaters, and to cause them to walk out of the theater and say to the manager, why are you showing such an awful movie? That offends common decency. So the idea was to prevent that from happening by... Uh, controlling content at the script level when the film was being written. So there had been the the don'ts and be carefuls. And then in 1930, they decided things had gotten so out of hand with the early talkies because sound had really come in in 1928 and very much in 1929. So by 1930, they realized that they couldn't censor a Vitaphone disc because most projectors at that point were using discs, not sound on film. And you can't, as you probably know, if you ever had an LP, you can't take a scissors and cut out a part of it. You know, it's not going to work. Right. Well, you, could, you can do that with a movie, of course. You can take a scissors and cut out a little piece of film. Or you can paint over the soundtrack. Anyway, the issue was they needed some way to control this. So they got all the producers together with a uh, an agency called the Studio Relations Committee, which was the West Coast office of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors Association, headquartered in New York, run by Will Hayes. And this is why you hear Hayes Code, Hayes, Hayes Office, Hayes this and Hayes that. He was the titular head of it, but he really wasn't there in Los Angeles on Hollywood Boulevard at the corner of Hollywood and Western doing the work. It was a man named Jason Joy was a colonel in the Red Cross from World War One. He was there reviewing scripts, talking to producers, looking at finished films, suggesting changes, trying to reach a compromise on artistic ideas that seemed to be too bold for the average audience. And in those days, there was no rating system. There was no way to keep children out of a theater. So things, you know, they said that a movie had to be safe to watch from anybody from age seven to age 107. So the code came in March 1930. So you'll say, well, why, if the code went from March 1930 to March 1934, are these called pre-code? There was a code in existence. Yes, that's true. But it was not enforced. It was flouted. It was resisted. It was ignored. It was laughed at. And in June 34, a militant Catholic layman named Joseph Ignatius Breen, B-R-E-E-N, took over and enforced the code. So really, these movies are not 
literally pre-code, they're pre-Breen or pre-production code administration because that's what he ran, the PCA. And he ran it from 1934 until 1954. And it lasted really until 1968 when it was disassembled and the rating system went into uh, operation run by Jack Balenti, who ran it for many, many years. So uh, pre-code means 1930 to 1934, when films were being made and a code did exist, but it was not enforced. And the Great Depression made the studios desperate to get audiences in. And the surefire way, as Jason Joyce said, the surefire way is sex. Those undressing scenes and, and what you, would you call it, innuendos in dialogue. So it, and it worked, it, it did work, but there was a groundswell of resistance too. There was a grassroots, primarily in the Midwest, <clears throat> people um, saying, I can't go to the movies anymore because they're just showing awful things. And, and films were cut by the local censor boards. There were, there were eight regional censor boards, but, you know, they could only cut so much. Right. And not, and not all of them were cut. So um, to answer your question in a roundabout way, that's why when we talk about pre-code movies, oh, we're going to see a pre-code festival, or we're going to see pre-code movies on Turner Classic Movies this month, we mean 1930 to 34 uh, films that may be a classic, but it, they really weren't censored. And uh, could you talk a little bit about just how uh, this book, your book came about and what drew you to pre-code films? What, what piqued your interest in those films? Well, um, to answer your first question first, the, the book came about in June, July of 1997 when there was a festival in New York City, I believe, at Film Forum. Oh, yes. by Bruce... Bruce Goldstein, and there was also a, a month of pre-code movies on Turner Classic Movies, and my editor at Harry N. Abrams, the publishing house, for whom I had just done George Harrell's, uh, Harrell's Hollywood Portraits, that was my first Harrell book, that came out in May 97. So a month later, he, the editor said, have you thought about the subject for your next book? And I said, no. He said, well, how, do you like pre-code films? And I said, yes, I, I've liked them since I was a child because when movies went to TV in 1956, 7, 8, 9, uh, all the studios sold their libraries to TV syndication. Uh, you could see pre-code movies for the first time since they'd been banned by Joseph Green in 34. The films prior to his taking office were just... Stifled. If they were going to be reissued, he he cut big chunks out of the negatives. Just scenes here and scenes there. King Kong, uh, Morocco, Shanghai Express, uh, all kinds of films were cut so they could be reissued in the 30s, 40s, 50s. Anyway, so these movies were on TV for people to see, and I really liked these films best of all the films I was seeing. So I embarked on this project and I was lucky to meet a man who had worked at the production code administration for Joseph Breen from 1943 to 1968. And he gave me all kinds of stories and information. And it was, it really made the book so much better than it would have been. How did, obviously when these movies were being made, they were not being called pre-code. So uh, who, who and when was the term pre-code coined? Uh, that credit goes to Bruce Goldstein in roughly 1988. Could be 87, 88, somewhere in there. When he uh, realized that he had done series at the Film Forum in New York, like uh, widescreen or widescreen black and white or uh, film noir. Uh, at this point, he realized that this was a discrete body of work. These films were unlike anything before or after because they were, you know, silent films had, you know, racy things in them, but it, these films were, were bucking rules and there's a different feeling you get when somebody is resisting than when they're just doing something. 
So he realized these these films, and he did the research, and there was a book called The Movies by Griffith and Mayer that came out in 1956. And that's the only book in the history of film books that talked about this. They didn't call it pre-code. They just called it the the gathering storm, the decency, the, the movies against decency. They But they, you know, they weren't taking sides. They just said, this is something that happened that after the talkies came in uh, and before the clampdown of the, the production code administration, there were these wild movies. Uh, so um, anyway, to answer your question, I, I really love the Mae West movies, Gene Harlow, Norma Shearer, Joan Crawford, Greta Garbo, the gangster movies of James Cagney, Edward G. Robinson. Of course, we couldn't see Scarface because that was held back by Howard Hughes' state for many years. But yeah, I, I really, really love these films, seeing them on television. And then when I was in high school, I got the high school to rent 16 millimeter prints and I would do program notes and then give them to the students. We'd run the films after school once a month. And many of them were pre-code. We had a full house for King Kong and a full house for Queen Christina <laughs> <laughs> at St. Joseph's High School in Alameda. And this is the spring of 68. So why, why was the code initially not enforced and why did people why did these directors feel confident enough that they could uh flout the code was there one particular movie that that changed everything or what you know what led to that well they yeah they they were following the example of one of the most prominent individuals in the industry Irving Thalberg production head at MGM which was the most prominent and profitable studio he was one of the writers of the code of the 1930 code he was he was there with uh, jason joy and and uh, a catholic a priest uh, father daniel lord and a number of other people that they all wrote you know drafted this document working together and thalberg thought apparently that he could make a film that would violate the code but that would still be worthwhile, have a valuable lesson, but but deal in, in kind of uh, controversial material. And that was, uh, the, he bought a book called Ex-Lady by Ursula Parrott. And it was a bestseller, and it was about a woman happily married. Her husband cheats on her, and then she turns around and pays him back by cheating on him with his best friend. They get divorced, and they both find out about living the single life as divorcees and it was a you know kind of a scandalous book and Thalberg thought this has a lesson in it too why divorce is a bad thing so he got a priest from Loyola University to say yes uh, this is a controversial book but there's a a valuable lesson in it and it teaches a, a moral there's a moral so it's this would not be a bad thing to make this film and so Thalberg was allowed to make the divorcee as long as the advertising did not mention the, the novel, ex-lady. I'm sorry, ex-wife. Um, and this, uh, so the studio saw him doing this. Oh, no. He thinks he's going to get away with this. We'll see what happens. Well, the film was a huge hit. It revived Norma Shearer's career, or I should say accelerated it in a different direction. It gave, got her an Academy Award for Best Actress of the Year. Uh, the film, as I say, made a lot of money. And so the other studio said, hmm, if Irving Thalberg can get, a, can get away with this, why can't I? So uh, you have a film like Illicit. Uh, what, what else was there? there was no, every studio had its own kind of ex-wife movie. And then, so Jason Joyce said, oh, we got a cycle here, a cycle of, of uh, ex-wife movies. Then they had a cycle of horror films, starting with Dracula and Frankenstein. And then they had the gangster cycle. These are all happening in 1931, but coincidentally, the Depression was really hurting the country. And thousands of banks were closing, people losing their life savings, people being thrown out of work people unable to buy anything. So of course the economy 
plummets because there's no buying power anymore. People can't sell things that they're manufacturing, so factories shut down or, or slow down. Um, so, but Hollywood wasn't feeling it yet. But then by the end of 31, Hollywood was definitely feeling it. People couldn't afford a dime, 10 cents to go to a movie. So Hollywood was said, what, what are we gonna do, what are we gonna do? Well, make sexy movies. So in 1932, oh boy, uh, Thalberg did a film called Red-Headed Woman with Gene Harlow, which, you know, started where the divorcee left off. And yeah. it was really a w wild movie. And she's not, the, the, this bad girl is not punished at the end for, her, for wrecking homes and doing all kinds of naughty things. So then you get the other studios doing their own versions of Red-Headed Woman. At Fox Film Corporation, which is foundering, you know, no leadership, no, you know, no good scripts, makes a movie called Call Her Savage with Clara Bow, which it was which started where Redhead Woman left off. And Call Her Savage is almost a catalog of everything that the code was supposed to prohibit. So, you know, tremendously entertaining things, at, but studios in very bad financial trouble. Paramount about to declare bankruptcy. RKO declared bankruptcy. Uh, Warner Brothers, you know, with a, a deficit of twelve million dollars, when they had had a huge twenty-five million dollar profit in nineteen twenty-nine, and then you see how it slid terribly, slid. Uh, so this, you just have this this thing going on of they're they're desperate to get people in the theater, so they just, you know, they start to to do these films that weren't supposed to be shot like a farewell to arms story of temple drake from william faulkner's sanctuary and the, you know this the, the parade was on now what would who are some of the uh standout in your opinion actors actresses and directors of the of the of the production code era films well uh this was an important period even if there hadn't been the, the pre-code issue, this was the dawn of sound. So uh, the studios were importing people from Broadway or just finding people in Los Angeles uh, who could, who sounded the way they looked. This was the problem. It wasn't that silent stars had bad voices per se. They just didn't sound the way people had imagined they would sound when they talked. Like primarily example, John Gilbert, also Norma Talmadge, Corrine Griffiths, Vilma Banke, uh, Rod LaRock. They just sounded different from the way people thought they would sound, had they imagined that they would sound. So uh, they got all these new people, James Cagney, Clark Gable, Edward G. Robinson, uh, Ralph Bellamy, um, Joan Blondell, Barbara Stanwyck, um, Gene Harlow. Now, some silent stars did make the transition and became even bigger than they were in silence. Specifically, Greta Garbo, Norma Shearer, and Joan Crawford. And these were all these three were MGM stars, so that helped MGM. One of the other studios was in very bad shape. MGM continued to have a profit. And what would you say are some of the We've already talked about how they're they're kind of sexy, but what are some of the other defining characteristics of pre-code films? Uh, of the the group that I screened for this episode, uh, it seemed like there were a lot of strong women. Yeah, that the um, the women were allowed to to because in real life the women were going out and getting jobs when their husbands were laid off at the factory. Uh, women were, you know, rolling up their sleeves and helping their husbands get through this crisis, having to be strong for them, for both people, and for the children. Uh, also, bear in mind that women at that time comprised 75% of the viewership of feature films. Uh, one reason was that they were free during the day, or at least in the afternoon for the matinees. And also, on the weekends, they would determine if it was a single woman she would de determine for her date what they were going to see if it was a married woman she would determine for her husband what they were going to see at the movie theater so movies had to appeal to this audience so there were strong women as you see for example in blonde venus 
Queen Christina, any Barbara Stanwyck film, she, you know, so big, uh, uh, Babyface, um, and the, what the articles would say that after interviews were done by Variety or Harrison's Reports or Motion Picture Herald, they'd say the women that they talked to said, well, maybe I'm not going to be like this myself in real life, but I enjoy seeing it on the screen. It's, it's an ideal. It's, a, it's an exciting fantasy to see a, a woman become the head of a corporation like Ruth Chatterton and female runs a, an automobile company like General Motors. So they, you know, women like these films. Um, and the studios were, people did write letters in those days. So the studios were aware of what their audiences thought. And if the letters, if they didn't have time to read all the letters that they got in the mail, the sack loads of letters, they did have time to look at uh, exhibitor reports in Motion Picture Herald, where the theater owners would say, what their audiences had told them after seeing the films, or more specifically uh, and more personally in Photoplay and Movie Mirror and Hollywood in the fan magazines. Letters from fans were published in which they said what, you know, what they thought of the current offerings. And there was about a two month lead, maybe, maybe six weeks between the time you'd write a letter to a magazine and when that letter would be published. Uh, so they, they knew and uh, they were able, the students were able to act on what they read from people writing letters saying, oh, I don't like what, what Joan Crawford did in Rain. Why did she play that character? It was just too, too awful, too unbelievable. She, she doesn't seem like that kind of person. I couldn't respect that kind of person. And um, on the other hand, there was a man who said, I was really down and out. I was so depressed and so sad. I just felt like I couldn't go on another day with this depression, this great depression. And I went to see a movie. I thought, oh, what, what, what else? I'm just, I'll just sit and go to sleep. He says, no, no, this movie was about a man who had gone through the depression of 1870. Was it 18? There was a depression in the late 1800s, I know that. And he'd gone through that, and then he survived it, and he became a, a capital of industry. And then when he's uh, he's old, then he comes into this depression and he has to go through it all over again. He says, I came out of there feeling so inspired, so so revived. My, my, my spirits were lifted by seeing this film. So you see that, you know, people wrote articulate letters because they were, you know, there was, a, there was a level of education in those days uh, that may not exist now, but um, people were able to write good letters and make themselves understood and had intelligent thoughts to share the studios read those letters and they, they knew okay we're going to do more films like the conqueror and it sounds like uh production code films or films of that era really dealt with real life issues as much as they could they dealt with trials and tribulations of dealing with the depression and and losing your home or losing your spouse and uh so it was something that that people could really relate to yeah, for example, there's a film, uh, Heroes for Sale, where Richard Barthelmus comes back from World War One, and because he had a terrible injury, he's uh, addicted to morphine. So he has to kick that habit and then find a job and find his place in society. Uh, and, so, and there was a film called Washington Merry-Go-Round that showed the, uh, the protests that took place in Washington, D.C., by veterans who said, you know, we, we can't eat, we can't work, you've got to help us. We, you know, we saved, we saved the world for democracy. And, you know, look at us now, we're, you know, we're starving. And there was a song about that too. Remember My Forgotten Man that was in the Footlight, Footlight Parade with John Blondell singing it. Oh, I thought Fantastic. that was Gold Diggers of uh, 1933. That's right, yeah, it was Gold Diggers of 33. Uh, Footlight Parade had the um, Shanghai Lil. Yes, I love that yeah. that number actually with Cagney and Ruby Keeler dancing together. Yeah, that uh, those the Warner Brothers. Uh, Hal Wallace was one of the heads of production under Jack Warner, and uh, he said we had a policy which was to study the newspapers and see what's a good story, what's going to tell us about. Uh, 
what's happening in the country and in the world. And so many of the Warner Brothers films dealt with some topical issue in the news. In 1930, beginning in 1930, we get the divorcee, as you mentioned, with Norma Shearer. And it's it's interesting because to a certain extent, it's kind of tame by comparison to a lot of movies that come after it. But it does deal with the, the issue of divorce, uh, which was scandalous at the time. But I thought it was very interesting that she... She's not, it's not that she's not a strong woman, but they do show her, you know, she's not necessarily having fun when she's single and sleeping with all of these different people um, or having, you know, uh, different relationships. She sort of ends up with Conrad Nagel for a while uh, before returning to her husband. And to, just to juxtapose that with a movie like Redheaded Woman, with Jean Harlow, who has no issue doing anything. Uh, well, yeah, there's one, there's one very important uh, element there, though. Norma Shearer had never played this kind of part before. She was married to uh, one of the country's top executives. In other words, she was sort of like Eleanor Roosevelt. I mean, she was a, a wife and mother very respected, a pillar of the community, important in Hollywood society. And the idea that she'd play a role like that was just, wow, it was just unthinkable. So that was the, the issue there. And that and she, she said, my fans had written to me and they said they enjoy seeing me in these, these uh, risque roles. They like to see me go to hell and lose myself but they insisted I come back at the end before the final fade out. Right. So if, for example, Strangers May Kiss has a kind of compromised, unsatisfactory ending, which she gets back with this guy who's been kind of abusive to her, disrespectful. But the studio thinking was, well, if we let her run free and not come back, then we're going to get very bad reactions from theater owners, fan mail, everything. So they had to, to... do that but then of course there were letters complaining about that <laughs> ending too oh why did you do that that man wasn't good first you should have gone off with robert montgomery right um now <laughs> i i want to say one of my favorites of this era is Babyface, and it's really quite rough i mean it begins with it stars barbara stanwyck and it begins with her essentially being pimped out by her father. Yes. And and then uh, he he dies, surprisingly, and uh, she sort of strikes out on her own um, after being given advice to use men to her advantage. One of the, the really interesting aspects of that film, though, that I'd like to hear your uh, thoughts on were her relationship with Chico, which I th- I have to imagine was not common in that era to have what seemed to be a genuinely loving friendship between a white woman and a black woman. Yeah, you also have this uh, in... Um, oh, gee, I can't think of it right. But there are several films where you see different races respecting one another and you, you wouldn't see that very often in films after 1934 it just wasn't something that was going to happen um, so yeah there was also I, one thing you notice too is there are a lot of Jewish characters you know prominently acting in these films between 30 and 34 and suddenly in around 35 they're gone you don't see you know, the, the, the friendly neighbor, Mrs. Goldberg, coming over and giving advice, that that's all gone. And um, and you don't see films that are critical of law enforcement, that are critical of government, uh, that are critical of organized religion. Uh, all these things that you see in pre-code films are gone, gone, gone when, when Breen takes over. When Breen takes over in 1934, it... Was there, 
was it just that he was hard nosed and and really uh, adhered to the code stringently, or had or were there movies that at, where people at some point said this is too much? I mean, were there specific movies that sort of inevitably, sort of ironically, ended that period that they were trying to continue? Well, no. What The basic thing that people seem to ignore entirely is that the MPPDA, the Hayes Office, supposed, so-called Hayes Office, was bankrolled by the studios to keep them safe from government interference. Because you know in other countries, the government just took over the film industry and made it a propaganda arm. Well, that could have happened here too, and it almost did. There was the Brookhart bill. There was a number of bills that went through Congress that almost got passed, except that the the lobbies, the most picture lobbies were very strong, and people like Will Hayes kept it from happening. But the whole point of the, the Studio Relations Committee and Jason Joy and the MPPDA were to keep the studio safe. So what's really weird and crazy is that the studios are paying all this money for this agency to keep them safe and they're not letting the agency do the job they're they're fighting to to make movies that are against what the agency is supposed to accomplish so they're endangering themselves but they just you know they wouldn't wouldn't cooperate so you know breen but breen had another aspect to it he just he felt that those films were were immoral and they were hurting children and hurting adults and so he it was going to do the job that the agency was being paid to do by this by the industry but also he wanted to make sure that that nobody would be scandalized by what they saw on the screen so um i mean once he took over the studios realized that <laughs> he was not going to back down whereas the, the previous ones would negotiate compromise and so forth he was not going to back down he was militant and so they went there were a number of films in the summer of 34 where they like for example Madame du Barry which is a film from Warner Brothers with Dolores Del Rio and it's it's pretty raunchy even in this the you know once he got through with it it's still pretty raunchy but but they realized and then nobody went to see it because people realized it had been tampered with like don't, don't waste time it's going to be a, it's it's hard to follow the story there's so much missing uh by 1935 and six, the studios just weren't submitting anything anymore that was a problem. That they, that they they knew that Breen would would chop up in little pieces. I mean, there's exceptions, of course, but uh, but for the most part, they just realized let's let's make movies based on classics by like the Three Musketeers and Mutiny on the Bounty and things that that have no controversial elements in them or if there were they would just eliminate them before they submitted the, the treatment uh, of the script to the production code administration for approval one of the movies uh that i watched for this was she done him wrong which is a may west movie um what was may west's importance to that era or or was there was her I sort of think of Mae West as being quite important to that early 30s era. Yes, she had been a major Broadway star based on... Uh, she had been a, like a, a, a song and dance performer before that, but once she started writing her own plays, she decided to do them about sex. She, she had a very liberal idea about sex, so she wrote these plays that were very sexual, and one of them... <laughs> was shut down by the police in New York and she went to jail for a week. Um, but her plays were very popular and she was very witty, very funny, and she had a unique personality, a unique way of putting things over. So when she's brought to, to Hollywood at age 39, they weren't quite sure what to do with her, but they let her, once she wrote her own lines in, in some of the scenes that she was in in someone else's film, they realized, well, let's, let's let her do her an entire movie. So she took one of her big hits from Broadway, Diamond Lil, uh, and at the studio saying, well, we're not really doing Diamond Lil. It's a, it's a different story. 
it may resemble that, but it's a different story altogether. Well, it was the same story, and people soon got wise to it, but uh, it was so different from anything that had been done, and she was so unusual. But she was unique. She just wasn't the, the average leading lady. She was, you know, a powerhouse. She was the, the entire show uh, in herself. And, of course, it helped that she discovered, or not discovered, but, but made Cary Grant a star in the process of the first two films. But she she was just such an unknown quantity, and also people wanted to laugh. This, this was the worst period of the Depression, the first quarter of 1933. It was very, very bad. When Roosevelt took over, Franklin D. Roosevelt from, took over from, uh, from Herbert Hoover, the banks were shipping gold out of the country, and there was going to be an economic collapse. That was the reason for the bank holiday. So things were very bad, and uh, Mae West comes along with this movie that people laughed. It was a short film, so they could get more showings in per day. That was a very crafty thing to do. So 60, what, 66 minutes or something and people were just laughing and coming back and watching it again and again and again that one of the censors came to the office in New York to the MPPDA and he said oh my wife's here he wants to know can we get us can we get a screening of <laughs> the next May West movie before it comes out she loves she done it wrong so you know if the censors even loves May West you know there's a problem there but yeah she she really had an entirely fresh and and vital approach to to the oldest story in the world and people just needed to laugh and they needed to to let loose they were so frightened and, and worried and nervous it was a terrible time and she actually or that film actually uh you mentioned in your book that she saved paramount well, uh, there were th- uh, actually four films. Uh, uh, Farewell to Arms, The Side of the Cross, She Done Him Wrong, and I'm No Angel. Those four films uh, forestalled the uh, the inevitable. I mean, eventually, Paramount did go into receivership, but, but it, it, without uh, shutting down, because they would have had to shut down in, in December of 32 and January 33, if it weren't for those particular films. And Mae West did I'm No Angel as well, correct? Yes, that's that was an even bigger hit than, than uh, She Done I'm Wrong. Uh, so if, if you were going to um, suggest three uh, pre-code films to someone who is just starting out and wants to be sort of introduced to the genre, or that's not a genre, but to that era, what what three pre-code films would you suggest someone see? Well, I would say Trouble in Paradise, which is Ernst Lubitsch's masterpiece, his favorite film. Uh, Herbert Marshall, Kay Francis, Miriam Hopkins. It, it breaks many of the rules of pre-code. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, many of the rules of the code. And it's, uh, it's just, it's an excellent film that because of its wit and, and warmth and, uh, beauty it really really holds up it's just it's a it's a really superior work of art and then i would suggest um red-headed woman because you really get this the full impact of gene harlow being you know brazen and unbridled and uh she done him wrong definitely and then i have a couple of other things that, that are available on DVD, I'm happy to say, uh, and Blu-ray. Uh, the DVD would be a film called Search for Beauty. And this was made right at the end of the pre-code period. And somehow or other, it got through the teeth of the... Because Breen was in there by that time, but he was out getting the, the Legion of Decency inflamed so that they would push push the MPPDA to, to pass the, the new code. So he wasn't in the office. So somehow this film slipped through. Uh, and it's a film about uh, Olympic athletes who are duped into becoming, um, what would you call it, uh, brand ambassadors for a, a magazine and for a health club that are definitely shady. And Robert Armstrong from King Kong and James Gleason from every other movie that you've ever seen 
are these two con men and the Olympic athletes. One of them is Buster Crabb, who really was an Olympic athlete. The other one is Ida Lupino, who later became a respected director and actress. And Buster Crabb went on to be Flash Gordon. Right, and this is a really, really funny movie. Uh, it's just outrageous. Um, I mean, it even has male nudity in it, in a locker room scene. But the, but its, its charm is that it makes fun of censorship. It makes fun of propriety. It's, it's hilarious. So I highly recommend Search for Beauty. And then uh, Joseph von Sternberg's Scarlet Empress is on Blu-ray. And that's one of the masterpieces of the pre-code period. It's really, really a great film. And that's uh, Marlena Dietrich? Right. It's just, she plays Catherine the Great. And it's, it, it could not be, have been made in 1935 or 36. Because it's all about sex. Unrepentant. It's, it's really something. But it's, it's a masterpiece of visual art. It's one of the most beautiful films ever shot. Uh, it's, it's, it very and Dietrich gives a great performance, and uh, it's just a, it's a it's like a dream. It's a very dreamlike film, very or nightmarish in some some scenes. But I recommend that one very highly. Um, and I, we've mentioned her a couple of times, but I just wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, sort of firestorm that is Jean Harlow. She's well. Yeah, I don't know the firestorm. But t- I mean, Mae West was was the firestorm, but Jean Harlow, people, I don't know. She, she had such following that, uh, and her innocent qualities seemed to excuse anything else that happened. So, it wasn't that she was censorable. In, for example, Girl from Missouri, that was one of the first films that kept come out after the production code. It was the story. And even she wrote a letter saying she just couldn't understand what all this was about, and she saw people were getting carried away, and and she felt embarrassed and sad that people thought that she might have had something to do with it. And, but uh, no, I think it, it was uh, and ditto for Clara Bow with Call Her Savage. She she just you know this is my comeback. I got to make make good with this. And, but then she said, I don't want to be remembered as a a woman who couldn't do anything but take her clothes off. So she got fed up too after the next film. But, um, you know, when it comes down to it, a lot of the, the anger in 33 and 34 wasn't the films per se. It was the posters that were being painted by the theaters, not by the studios. And people would, you know, priests and Catholics would go by these theaters to see these posters and then just get, oh, we can't go see that movie, but we. So what can we take our children to? Nothing. There's nothing to see anymore, except Little Women and Cavalcade. So it was a, it was this perception of what Hollywood was doing. But then once in a while they would go and see a film, and if they happened to go see, you know, Search for Beauty or something, then they'd be really shocked. But again, even that's qualified because I found out so many of these films were chopped up before the people even saw them. So these salacious scenes that we see now in in these restored prints, a lot of people didn't even see them. And the, the, what I thought was really shocking was Philadelphia when they ran Grand Hotel, which, you know, is an adult film, but it wasn't wasn't in any way salacious like some of the other films were. Right. With chorus girls and stuff. I'd say almost 10 minutes was cut from from that film. Ten, ten minutes of running time was cut from that film. Uh, and one of the people wrote to the fan magazine and said, I went to see the movie and they, they crossed the state line and saw it someplace else. And they said, now I can follow the story. She said, I couldn't believe what, what they, how much they cut out where I couldn't even follow the story. You could, and then the, the, people, the voices were jumping, they, this, they, the lines of dialogue were cut out. But it was, uh, so we, and then the thing that really got me was the sign of the cross is, I would say, if not the most shocking pre-code movie, it has to be right up there with Scarlet Empress, Babyface, and uh, She Done It Wrong. But 
even that one and its first run in New York City was cut because people were fainting. Uh, I, I think you know <laughs> there were some reports of vomiting, but I'm not sure. But people were fainting. People fainted easily in those days. Um, fainting at the violence and and shocked at the, the sexual content. Uh, so the the theater owner snipped a little bit of it away, and then it went to the second first run in New York City, and that guy cut even more. That theater owner. So it's and yet when it played. <laughs> When it played the Midwest, the, what are called the regional theaters, which were months and months and months after the, the first run, uh, apparently they got complete prints and, <laughs> and nobody complained. <laughs> <laughs> because those letters that are in those magazines, the Motion Picture Herald, those uh, theater owners wrote and said, oh, it wasn't as bad as they said it was. <laughs> So were there certain areas, certain regions that were more likely to cut than others? I mean, it sounds like New York and Philadelphia cut a lot, and then the Midwest didn't. You would have thought it might be the opposite. Uh, Yeah, San Francisco cut freaks. Uh, um, It just depends. Yeah, it was, uh, it just depended from film to film or month to month. But yeah, the head center in New York State was really cut a lot and then he came to work for the for the studio relations committee after jason joy got fed up and went to work for fox film (laughs) and this uh this guy couldn't communicate with the producers or directors so he just would end up not cutting so that's how sign of the cross got through and she done him wrong so it was sort of kind of haphazard of the movie, the, the, the city, the state, and who happened to be in charge at that moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think Atlanta also was pretty stringent. Um, but, again, um, the studios tried to, you know, get these prints back that had gone to the, and been butchered. They tried to, to put the scenes back in or just give them brand new prints for the regional uh, dates, which would be, you know, would, would go for months and months and months. Whereas the the cities, uh, there was, I found an article in, in 1939, the Los Angeles Times that explains it. There was the first front, there was the, the second first front, then there was uh, the downtown theaters, then there were the neighborhood theaters, then there were the grindhouses. <laughs> <laughs> and and then the prince came back to the studio, at which time the the admission price had gone, I think from two fifty down to, to ten cents. So, uh, but they really squeezed the juice out of those movies, you know, in, in the, the cities, and they they expected really to make the money there, because when you read these reports from Motion Picture Herald, where the people in you know like Oak. Was it called Oakdale, California? This is a lumbering or logging community, or you know these various places that with the farm communities or you know the, these outlying areas. Surefire hits were, were flops in those areas. All they wanted to see were movies about farms and and uh, cowboys, and they they didn't have any interest in, in sophistication, uh, glamour. Um, I was really like one one said, well, it's doing pretty well, but because usually Joan Crawford doesn't do well here. And then that's like saying, you know, God doesn't do well in church. I mean, it was, <laughs> I couldn't believe that what there was, someone would say that, but it was, it was true. Wow. That is, that is kind of, yeah. <laughs> to think that Jim Crawford. Kansas or Nebraska. Somebody wrote that. I was really shocked. That is, that is quite shocking. Now, what do you what do you think it is about these pre-code films that uh, they remain pop- popular to this day? I mean, I know people who are not particularly film people who love pre-code films. Uh, they seem to speak to modern audiences, even though they were made, you know, 70, 80 years ago. Uh, I would say it's the energy. First of all, remember... This, this was, they were still experimenting with sound. 
uh, really Sign of the Cross was the first film, and that was December of 32. The first film that 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 successfully integrated all the elements of sound and all the elements of cinema, moving camera, uh, zoom lenses, um, aerial shots, uh, dissolves, shock cuts, um, uh, mixing 11 tracks into one soundtrack, uh, 11 tracks of different kinds of sounds, things like that. I mean, uh, stop frames, all kinds of things. The things that, that had been denied to filmmakers from 28 up until then because sound, that the technology of sound film could not accommodate what the silent films had done. So, uh, so you know, when you see the Scarlet Empress, you realize this is 1934. There was not a sufficient vocabulary for a reviewer at that time to say what that film had accomplished because it was so, so far in advance of its time. So the energy of creativity was in those films. Also the energy of, of saying to the, you can't make us you know, do what, what you want us to, we, you're not going to stop us from showing this. You're not going to stop us from filming this story. We're going to do this anyway. There was that energy, that, that uh, defiance, that you, it comes through. And I'll tell you also the thing that really brought it home to me. I used to have a film series uh, where I would get 16 millimeter prints from Universal. And the B films from the pre-code era have a certain quality to them. And you can tell they're putting saucy things in there to keep you awake, but usually it would hung, it hung together, it would work. And you, they're entertaining. You get to 1936 and 37 and 38, the films like Paramount and 20th Century Fox. Oh my Lord, they're just so boring. There's just no vitality. There's just, it's all formula. It's all flat. It's just, ugh. And there's that, you know, I guess I kind of defeatist, you know, well, we're going to make these people go see them, but why knock ourselves out with creativity if we don't have to? Right. Barely you'd find someone like Robert Florey doing a B-movie like Daughter of Shanghai with Anime Wong that's a creative, you know, creative film. And, and you mentioned something that I just wanted to touch on is that pre-code films are not actually all B-movies, that there were a lot of uh, high-profile, like Norma Shearer and Barbara Stanwyck, but there were high-profile actors, actresses, budgets um, given yeah, to these same, films. It's odd, you know, how these, I don't know, where, these, where do these misconceptions come from? Oh, film noir, there were B-pictures, dark, uh, pre-co, there are little, little trashy things that they tossed off. No, these <laughs> million-dollar movies from major literary properties that, you know, were controversial, Farewell to Arms, Sanctuary. Uh, yeah, the majority of these films were big budget films with fine craftsmanship and creative writing, uh, masterly direction and gorgeous photography, just gorgeous. If you, you know, get these, these Blu-rays that are coming out now, they're just beautiful. Yeah, so these were definitely, I mean, these were Academy Award-winning movies. Exactly. Cavalcade. Uh, it happened one night. I mean, yeah, those are, those are all pre-code movies. King Kong. Yeah, yeah. Um, Grand Hotel. 42nd Street. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we had the, the musicals. There were also pre-code musicals that were absolutely stunning. Uh, Busby Berkeley really got started in pre-code. That's right, he did indeed. And that, that era made stars a lot. So many stars that lasted for another 20 or 30 years came from pre-code. You know, Dietrich, Stanwyck, I mean, uh, Robinson, Paul Muni. Yeah, they all came from pre-code. And you mentioned It Happened One Night, which, to my knowledge, was the first movie to sweep the Oscars. Uh, I'm not sure, but I think it's true, yeah. Uh, it got Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Picture. Um, that I don't. That was sort of at the tail end of the pre-code, but it does. It definitely has some pre-code elements in it. Oh, definitely, yeah, yeah. They did a lot of, um, particularly in the musicals. They did a lot with silhouettes. Oh yeah, yeah. Dancing Lady, for example. 
Yes. There's uh, actual nudity in silhouette. Oh, and definitely. Supposed to do that. That, that's in the code. The code prohibits that. Nudity in factor in silhouette says that right there. So what were the rules? Like, was it like a like a Ten Commandments type of thing where you said you cannot have a film that does ABC? Yeah, there was a there was a document and it it had uh, it had paragraphs, articles, uh, sentences, um, ABC, you know, like one, two, three, ABC, like an outline, and specifically prohibiting this, 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 and this. And so it was like what, for example, um, you couldn't you couldn't show drug use, for example. Right, uh, drug use in factor and silhouette. And uh, you see it all through pre-code and silhouette, the Mad Genius, uh, all kinds of different movies. So, what were some of the others that they that they found scandalous? Because it, you were saying that they, like after the after the pre-code era. You didn't see, for example, Jewish characters or relationships between races. Were those things that were actually in the code? Yes, yes. Miscegenation, uh, sex perversion, that's what the, there was their name for homosexuality. Um, miscegenation, uh, uh, drug use, uh, no disrespect to law enforcement or government or to foreign governments or making fun of any other country. These are all in there, in, you know, spelled out, black and white. And so... You know, but the only things, there's the only misunderstanding, I've got to clear this up right now. There's nothing in there about double beds. That was something that the British censors asked the American censors, can you get a gentleman's agreement with your studios to, to not have single beds in a film? So that's the only thing that I know of that was an unwritten rule, but they did adhere to it. The rest of it had to be in the code, in black and white, for it to be administered and enforced. Oh, that's interesting that that came from from the British. I did, I did not know that. that and was... yet you watch British films from the 30s and 40s, and they're full of damn and hell. Yeah, but they don't they're want single them. beds. Yeah, and yet the Americans could not say damn or hell in a movie. <laughs> Selznick had to pay $25,000 to Joseph Breen's office to, for the clerk able to have that exit line and gone with the wind. Wow. That's a, that's a, that's a hefty price for a word. Yep, yep. Well, this has been a very interesting discussion. I'm learning something. That's, I did not know that about the double beds. That's, that's quite interesting. Yeah. Um, so... Just a, a last word about about pre-code films. Um, what uh, what ended it? I mean, someone else took over from Breen, and you said it basically ended in 1968. Was there a specific reason why it ended, or was it was it? Oh yeah, <laughs> no one was paying attention to it anymore. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, Psycho was the one, one of the first ones, if not the one. Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho really uh, delivered the, the the fatal blow, and it was just a matter of the next eight years, people just ignored it. So it so it so it started because people were ignoring it, and then it ended because people ignored it. Yeah, exactly. That's that's very telling. There was no hue and cry in 1968 as there had been in 1934 with organized demonstrations and letter writing campaigns and editorials and there was really it really was a grassroots movement and it was very well organized uh the catholics really mobilized their population to boycott and nothing works like a boycott <laughs> yeah yeah uh and and it seems that maybe the audience um, matured a bit and became a little bit more sophisticated by the 60s? Well, World War II made a big difference. Films after World War II, you can see that they're, they deal with more mature subject matter. So, you know, Bringy really had, had some fights on his hands in the late 40s, early 50s. Um, and that's more or less why he retired. He just realized he was tired. It was, the world had changed and the, the code had, had not been updated. 
And you, you know, because I think of a movie like A Place in the Sun, which, while it's certainly not pre-code, it's 1950, but you're dealing with some very controversial issues. I mean, murder and and possible abortion and uh, just... Well, okay, you know that was made in 31 also by Joseph von Sternberg. Yes, yes. Yeah, so... It's, um, they didn't deal with the abortion issue in that one, but um, uh, the place in the sun. See, that's post-war, and so they. It was just a matter of okay, how are you going to put this across? And and everybody in it is punished. That was the basic thing. If they're punished, the only ones where they weren't punished was streetcar named Desire. Um, but. Uh, in most films, if if the character was punished, the character could do things that were, were wrong. It's just you couldn't see them doing it. That was the other thing. Which happens actually in, uh, bringing us back to the divorcee, you see, you you see more of the ramifications of what she's done. You don't actually see her do it. Right, right. Uh, you don't see her kiss. She doesn't kiss Montgomery. Right, right. Uh, no, you don't see her do it, and and you really see her. I feel like in a way she is punished. I mean, you see her feeling really guilty and really bad about it, what she's done. Yeah, yeah. In uh, yeah, and strangers may kiss also. Same. She 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 suffers. Well, thank you very much. This has been a fascinating conversation. I've just really enjoyed it. Uh, and I want to thank you for giving me your time to talk to me about this today. I'm happy to because I, you know, I'm very enthusiastic about these films and I want people to know about them and to enjoy them and to learn from them. And where can people pick up your book? Uh, the book is on Amazon. Or it's also available through Larry Edmonds Cinema Bookshop in Hollywood. It's on Hollywood Boulevard. You can order directly from, from them. And if people would like independent bookstores, and if people would like to uh, find you on social media, I have a Forbidden Hollywood page on Facebook that I update every few days with fresh photos. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Manuel.